Hello, and welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the folks who build them. And I'm joined, as always, by the esteemed... Dominic Midori Davis. Hey, Dom. Would you say that you have a green thumb? Uh, I don't have any plants in my home. I think they all died. But I'm an aspiring green thumb, I think. Well, are you a green thumb? Considering I can't keep anything alive, I would say no, even though I wish the answer was yes. But maybe the guest we have on today has created something that can help you and I, Dom. Yes, let's see. Today, we're talking to Graham Hine from ePlant, which is a company that creates sensors that collect data about plant and tree health, which helps customers, both those like Dom and I, as well as large corporations and research orgs, care for their plants better. And this is what Graham told us about ePlant. Hey, Graham, how's it going? Doing great. Nice. So weather out here, it's starting to get cool in California again. It was pretty hot over the weekend, but we're back in a cool spot. Nice. I was up in Maine last weekend. You could have thought it was September or fall already, like crisp morning temperatures. And I prefer hot weather, so I didn't love that too much. (laughs) I'm a cold weather creature, so I'm enjoying this cool year we're having. But it's been weird weather all over the place. Super hot in some places, super cold in others tons of rain over the winter, which is great, except for the trees falling down. And that is such a good segue. We're here not only to talk about trees, but trees are obviously very important to both you and ePlant. So why don't we start there? Tell us a bit about ePlant. Well, ePlant started with the idea of creating advanced technology to help keep trees healthy and growing. So we've got this kind of core mission around trees and trees are everywhere, but they tend to be background for a lot of people. But the world is kind of waking up to just how important they are to kind of everything we do and in particularly our environment. And that's where ePlants put itself. So, you know, we're developing IoT technologies and scalable networking and advanced analytics and AI to help understand what's happening with the trees around us and help keep them doing well because we need them. And that you're totally right that, I mean, trees... They're lovely. We see them everywhere, but you don't often think like, I can't tell you what kind of trees I have in my backyard, even though they're there. I clean up after them three seasons of the year, et cetera. What got you interested in diving further into this space and sort of learning more about how trees do fit into some of these broader issues? Well, it's it's kind of interesting because I've had a, a funny journey as a startup founder. The last company I was at was a company called Liquid Robotics. And I've always been a bit of an ocean person, but Liquid Robotics really got me into monitoring the environment in the ocean. And we had a little ocean going surfboard sized robot that gathered energy from waves and solar and went out and took measurements of what's happening out in the ocean. I sold that company to Boeing and talked to some of our co-founders after the Boeing acquisition, and they had been doing research at the Jupiter Research Foundation on plant signaling and plant communications. And that got us thinking about, hey, is there a technology that could help us monitor the forests, kind of the way we've been monitoring the oceans? And that led to the founding of ePlant, now I'm kind of weirdly obsessive about trees, but you know, starting out ePlant, I kind of knew they were important. I knew that they mattered. I had a sense that the forests were kind of second only to the oceans in terms of the world's lungs. But 
really had, I couldn't have told you what trees were in my backyard other than, you know, my mom kind of saying, coming by and saying, hey, that's a coast live oak, that's a bay laurel, these are natives, these are important. It really was background for me. And now I'm kind of strangely obsessed with about trees. I mean, not a bad thing to be obsessed with. <laughs> They're fun. They're really interesting organisms. And there's a ton going on. You know, you, we think of them as relatively static. But, you know, one of the realizations we had was that they actually kind of have a pulse they have this daily heartbeat signal, and that's kind of what we ended up teasing out with our sensors. And that's what gives us an idea of how they're doing and how much water they have and whether the environment is keeping them healthy or causing them problems. And it's been an interesting journey. So how does the product work? Like, how does the average person use the ePlant device? Yeah, well, we've been working initially with researchers and scientists and kind of industrial users in agriculture on these sensors. And we started looking at how an individual could kind of use a sensor to help them tell what's going on with the tree. Understanding that heartbeat is kind of initially daunting, but actually eventually, once you look at it a little bit, really kind of straightforward. You'd expect a tree to grow on a daily basis. And they don't grow by much. It's less than the width of a human hair. It really is kind of microscopic. But if it's springtime and everything should be green and growing and the tree isn't, that's a pretty good indicator that you've got an issue. And the issue is almost always water. You know, the first thing, it's kind of the 80-20 problem. So it's often water. So one of the basic things our devices do are just tell you whether or not your tree needs water. And we kind of present that in a way that's easy to understand. And, you know, hey, it needs a little bit of water or, hey, it's critical. And then help you understand, you know, more deep guidance on exactly how to water trees and take care of them. But it starts out with a little sensor. It's about the size of a slightly large stick of chewing gum that goes on the tree. It's got a solar panel, so you don't have to recharge it. And it goes up on the tree, and it sends the data wirelessly through the cloud to our AI servers and then out to people so that they can help understand what's, you know, they can understand these signals coming from these trees. Okay, that's so very cool. Because at first when I was thinking about it, okay, so it only works with trees right now. Because I was also thinking about, like, how do you attach this to, like, a little sunflower plant or something? Mm-hmm. Well, we're working on that. And, and we're e-plant, not e-tree. So eventually we'll be covering all plants. But really, most plants, and I wouldn't say all plants because some of them are really weird, but most plants have the same kind of daily water cycle that we're observing in a tree. And with a tree, you're looking at the layer between the hardwood in the middle and that kind of growth layer just underneath the bark that's called the cambium. That's the layer that's changing and growing every day. That's where new cells get added to the tree and how they get bigger. And palm trees work a little different than that. Cactus works a little different and sunflowers work a little different. But the basic principle of the tree kind of growing over time or the plant growing over time and then that daily transpiration cycle. And that's where in the daytime when it's hot and sunny and the plant is photosynthesizing, it's evaporating water. So water is evaporating out of the plant. Stomata might be open on the leaves, his little pores evaporating water out and driving this photosynthesis. And at night, that all relaxes, the pores close, it gets a little cooler, it typically gets more humid. And that's when the trees kind of reabsorb water from the ground and swell back up. And if they've got enough water, then they get a little bigger the next day because they're growing. And you see this kind of extended little heartbeat that's kind of up into the right and uh, growing. And that growth signal and that heartbeat have a lot of information in them. So if you water a tree, you can see, uh, water a tree when it's shrinking, you can see that shrinking change. If you water it when it's growing, it'll grow a little faster. If you water at night, it's actually harder to see than if you water during the daytime in the data, but it's still there. And if you've got a pathogen or, or a disease or a pest, 
often that interrupts that water cycle. And so now when the tree should be growing and responding to water, it's not. And you can start to figure out what's going on there. And we're starting to apply AI to that. And we're trying to apply the law of large numbers. So we're, we've got about 1,500 sensors out in the world right now because we're just getting started. But our goal is to have millions. And we're going to feed that all into AIs for analytics and help understand not just happening what's happening with a tree, but try to help understand what's happening with trees all over the place. Pausing on the sensor for a second. Yeah. I'm curious both how you guys realized this was both the approach to use attaching a sensor to each tree. And how did you guys discover that this was going to record the data you guys were looking for? Experimentation, research, and trial and error. It was kind of funny. We're actually looking at a number of different things. I mentioned Jupiter Research was studying plant signaling. So they'd been looking at electrochemical signaling pheromonal signaling, microrhizome signaling, and physical connections and signaling. As we were watching this, we thought, you know, it's kind of interesting. There are genetic pathways opened up through electrostimulation. We started to study that a little bit. And then we started to say, well, we need to measure growth in order to understand whether or not these interventions are having a positive effect. The first instance of this was a magnet at the end of a clothespin that was wrapped around a tomato stem, a magnet and a Hall effect sensor to try to track the growth. And then we realized that we're actually seeing a pulse signal. And then we realized that that pulse signal actually has a ton of information about what's happening with the tree. It's simple, it's cheap, and cheap matters. You know, there's 3 trillion trees in the world. If it costs 10 bucks to go do them all, then you're not going to do it. It's got to be an inexpensive way to go to measure. We thought we could get this thing to be inexpensive, get it to be easy to use, get it to be low maintenance. We tacked on a few other sensors just because they're easy, but also very helpful. We have humidity, we have temperature, we have light. And then we have an accelerometer, just like in your, in your phone, that can detect motion. And what we're looking for there is if the tree is going to fall over. So we start looking to see if the tree is leaning and falling. And so that was the initial set of sensors we decided to put into the device. You know, electrostimulation, electrosensing, that might be down the road. But right now, uh, this dendrometer is what that physical instrument's called, the measurement, a heartbeat. That seems to give us a great amount of information and answers the big question around water and growth. Something that's so interesting about your background as a founder, like you've obviously worked at a startup before and had a successful exit and everything, but it was so concentrated on like a different type of science. Like, yeah, they're kind of in the <laughs> same realm of the environment and sort of environmental impacts and like ways to kind of mitigate that. But what was it like for you personally, like transitioning from like, I was all focused on the ocean. I'm super knowledgeable in this area. I've been building this area for years and then kind of switching to something that's kind of similar flavored, but at the same time, very different, like trees and plants. I have entrepreneur attention deficit mm. disorder. <laughs> so I love to attack new problems and build new things. So for me, you know, I started out actually in computer voice processing back when that was a thing, early voicemail systems, back when we were switching from tapes to digital recordings and voicemail, kind of dating myself here. But that moved to robotics and semiconductor industry. We we're moving wafers around the semiconductor fab. Then my brother invented this crazy wave-powered vehicle, which got me into the oceans. And I just loved learning all about the oceans. You know, we got to go visit Scripps Institute in Southern California, got to go and visit, visit the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, get all over the world, Indonesia to, to South Africa, to Asia, to all over the place. And, you know, the oceans truly are a global thing. That got us in touch with the defense industry and the 
oil and gas industry and the environmental and weather monitoring industries. And we got to touch all these different industries as part of the liquid robotics journey. And now I'm switching out and I'm finding that there's a forest industry I'm getting to know. There's an agricultural industry I'm getting to know. There are conservation projects and reforestation projects that I'm getting to learn about. And I just love the journey of learning about new things, getting involved with them. The knowledge you get that's specific about a given industry is valuable. I, I never discount it. But the real value is in learning how to learn mm. because you never know as much about an industry as the people who are doing it every day. And you realize that there's experts who stay focused in a given field their whole life. And as a person trying to build solutions that are flexible and can serve a lot of different purposes, you have to be flexible enough to kind of learn about them and enjoy learning about them and be excited about learning about them. And part of the joy of uh, B-Plant and then previously the joy of liquid robotics is they're all fun things to learn about. I was also going to ask that question <laughs> because now I'm also interested, like, is there any overlap between building products for the ocean and building products for plants and trees? Well, there is in a lot of ways. So, we were a sensor platform for the ocean. That's really what Wave Glider was. It was a remote sensing device that you'd send out in the ocean to collect data, send it back over wireless networks into the cloud to be analyzed and delivered to provide value to somebody. And that's really what we're doing with ePlant as well. We've got a sensor which is in a forest or an orchard or a backyard, sending data over the cloud through analytics to deliver to people. So from a data perspective, it's actually a really similar sort of approach. And the customers value the data. They don't actually care too much how you collect it other than it kind of gets out of the way. You know, they're kind of interested. They want to know how it works. But the value they're getting is that piece of information. My trees need water. Or the ocean temperature here is higher than normal. We need to update our weather forecasts. Those kind of bits of information are the real value. And the realization for both is that the data collection side needs to be friction-free. We need to make that as easy as possible, as inexpensive as possible. And that's applicable to both of those activities, both liquid robotics and e-plant. And so water and trees also have another thing common, and that is the climate crisis. Right. And so how have you seen the state of our trees or even the trees where you are? Have you seen those trees evolve over the last 10 years? And what state are they in right now? Yeah, well, we've seen it. I mean, just the last two years, we've seen some real drama when it comes to trees. We've seen massive forest fires taking out huge stands of our existing forests. And, you know, you can plant trees furiously, but if fire's taking them out, you're kind of playing a game like Sisyphus, rolling the boulder up the hill and going to have it roll down the other side. And these efforts to keep trees alive have only just been getting into full gear. People have been planting trees, and that's incredibly important. But you don't just plant a tree. You need to keep it growing and healthy. And what I've seen just personally is the climatic changes affecting globally what's happening with trees. We had the biggest drought in 12,000 years in Europe last year. We were talking to an orange grower out there, and they were just baffled by the water situation in Spain. Then we, you know, last winter here in California, I was sitting up in my house, which I'm, I live up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, kind of up in the coastal oak forests up there. And I'm only at 2,000 feet, but we had six inches of wet snow. And that's 
pretty much never happened in my lifetime in the Santa Cruz Mountains at that elevation. And the trees had never had six inches of wet, heavy snow on their branches. Going outside was like listening to firecrackers, listening to branches breaking. The trees were collapsing all over the place. Just on my little road to get in and out of my property, we had six downed trees. And that's the climate. You know, these extreme climate events are affecting us in different ways, but they're extremely visible as you start to look at how the trees are being affected. My brother likes to say, you know, our device is not the sensor, the tree is the sensor. And we're reporting what the tree is experiencing. And that's really what we're trying to do here. And, you know, listening to these trees is critically important for us to understand what's happening with the climate. Gosh, that's so awful and sad. It's tough. Trees. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I guess this is kind of a broad question, but you spoke about how we can't just plant trees. We have to make sure that they survive and that they grow. What right now are some of the challenges in making sure that those trees survive and keep growing? Well, you know, here's a more hopeful vision. Researchers involved with these planting projects and the folks really driving this are doing some incredible work to A, understand where and how to plant what trees. So the location of the planting matters, the planting methods matter, and the trees themselves matter. You need to pick species and really strains, you know, not not just a species of tree, but a strain of tree that's going to be adapted to what the climate is going to be. So if you plant a tree in an area that was fine for the last 30 years, but you don't look ahead and say, this is the kind of tree that needs to survive the next 30 years, you've really done yourself a disservice. The folks doing these projects, and we've been working with a few of them, you know, with the um, Climate Pledge and Veritree and others, these folks are really looking at the science of what kind of trees to plant and where to plant them. And they're learning better how to make these projects successful at the start. Then ePlant is trying to step in, and this is where we're getting involved, to try to monitor these plantings and make sure that we understand how they're evolving, whether the predictions were right on what the environment was going to be around those trees, and whether the trees are thriving or if they're just surviving or if they're not surviving. And that information helps inform future planting projects and helps us start to claw back against some of these climatic changes. And the work, you know, I can't praise enough the work that's being done in these areas. It really is some incredible science. And something else that was interesting about what you guys are trying to do is I noticed that you're making these sensors that do these amazing things like you just mentioned, providing all this research, definitely more on sort of the B2B side. But you guys are also selling these sensors to people who want to use them in their backyard, customers, people who have hobbies around stuff like this. And I'm curious what sparked the decision to launch into both a B2B strategy and a B2C strategy pretty early on. Mm -hmm. What was that decision process like? Maybe it's a little bit, you know, my story here, but I had these sensors in my backyard and I was really nerding out about them. I was playing around and, you know, I I planted a cherry tree in memorial of my my mother-in-law. And I started to watch that cherry tree on my my own. And every night I kind of made sure and the water was right. And I was watering it every seven days. Should I be watering every six days or five days? And I realized, you know, we started to have this realization kind of around the office that all of us that were playing with this thing kind of liked it for our own trees. And then we started to talk to people who do tree care for residential folks, you know, the, the arborists, the tree service companies that come by and help people take care of trees. And they said, hey, look, having data about a tree 
where we can help somebody take care of their tree is actually really important to us. And we think that would be good for our business. So there's a bit of a B2B aspect to that. But we think that our residents, you know, a lot of the residents who have trees would want these for themselves. So we start to ask ourselves, hey, is there a way for us to provide this in a, in a way that would be powerful and interesting and useful for people who aren't, you know, professional tree care people? And at the same time, kind of open AI and chat GPT was coming online. And we looked at that and thought, hey, can we use this to actually give the tree a voice to take the insights and feed them to this, you know, conversational engine so that it could say, hey, I'm zesty, your lemon tree, I'm thirsty, water me. That's what we ended up doing. So we've been, we've been building that and prototyping it and the thought, you know, this is actually kind of cool. You know, I'm more of a data graphs guy than a chat with the AI guy, but a lot of folks are really kind of enjoying the interaction with the trees. They kind of take on a personality. They start to talk to you. You know, Zesty can be cheerful and happy. My oak tree, Barkley, is grumpy. My maple tree, Scarlet, is, is convinced she's the most attractive tree in the world, and we'll tell you about it. But they'll all tell you what the insights behind that are needing to communicate. So if they're leaning over, they'll, they'll say, hey, I'm leaning over. Check with an arborist. I don't want to fall on your house. Or they'll say, I need water. Or they'll say, hey, I should be growing and I'm not maybe get some fertilizer out here and you can ask them, you know, hey, what kind of fertilizer do you use? And because they're tied to this giant horticultural database, they'll tell you what kind of fertilizer they want. They'll tell you how to mulch. It's like having a little expert gardener in your pocket. So in addition to this kind of real-time sensing information, you can actually get some good horticultural guidance from this chat engine in the background fed by real science and real insights. So it's pretty easy to just go ask ChatGPT how to take care of your tree. But it tends to, you know, invent things and it doesn't really know about your tree. But by connecting it through the sensor on your tree, it's using that and being provided insights through an analytics engine that are accurate and true to what's happening with your tree. That is so interesting. I would love to have that because I live in Brooklyn (laughs) and I have a backyard, Uh which we joke is radioactive. And we (laughs) have tried to grow stuff in it before with like no real luck. But our neighbors have a pear tree that produces full size, nice looking pears every season. And my boyfriend and I are kind of like, well, what gives? Like, why can't we grow literally anything in our yard? (laughs) Like, I would love to ask that tree, like, what's going on? Yeah. And the sensors are really best about telling you about water and growth and kind of anomalies. But just having that horticultural training, you know, these large language models have been trained on all kinds of horticultural data. And we feed kind of the back end some custom training on specific species and how to, you know, what the, what the correct ways to take care of a specific tree are. There's actually quite a bit of information you can pull out of these systems right now. And that's, you know, kind of the, the fun side of the interface to our sensors. You know, then on the other hand, I just like to watch that pulse and make sure it's growing. So I have kind of have that scrolling in the background on my screen. And thinking about the more of the B2B side for a second, you've mentioned a couple things, but I did want to ask, aside from some of these environmental groups you guys are sort of working with on the more research side, what is the customer base for this What does that look like? What has it been like doing some early selling to some of these groups? It's been really kind of interesting because, as I mentioned, there's agriculture, which is its own, you know, it's not even a monolithic culture. There's tree, fruit and nut tree agriculture. There's citrus agriculture. These do work on grapevines. So there's viticulture. We we have to work with chocolate trees, coffee trees, 
citrus trees and, and wine grapes. And it's kind of a, that's kind of a fun set of uh, folks to interact with. But the agricultural side of things is really interesting because it's really super focused on productivity and ROI. So it's a very logical sale. I can save you underwatering. I can improve your productivity. I can improve your fruit quality. Those are the messages that work with the agricultural folks. Then there's forestry. And the forestry folks are interested largely in research or uh, large area studies to make sure that they're understanding you know, how the forests are evolving, how they're changing, what they're going to need to do from a forest management perspective. Then there's lumber and forestry products side. They're interested in when the trees are available for harvest. They're, they're interested in how those trees can be replanted and grown quickly. They're interested in making sure that they plant the right species for productivity. And then there are agricultural researchers who are working on breeding the next generation of plants that will survive as the climate's changing. So we were lucky to start working with some chocolate researchers out of UC Davis early on. They were actually the first, first folks to try our little 3D-printed, hand-built prototypes. And we put these sensors on these chocolate trees. They're in a greenhouse or in a controlled environment. They wouldn't survive in California. They're, they're, they're from the Amazon basin. But in, in these greenhouses where it's humid and warm, they can survive. And they're doing these experiments on these chocolate trees to try to understand how to pick strains that are going to be productive and pick strains that are going to survive in reforestation activities where they're taking depleted pasture lands, installing chocolate trees, and installing hardwood trees to kind of be the shade layer over them. But the cacao trees have to survive in these windy open environments with direct sunlight. And that's not how the plant evolved. The plant evolved in the understory of, of a jungle, of the rainforest, where it's humid and there's not much sunlight and there's no wind. So they dry out and they die. They put all little sensors on these chocolate trees and they had with 20 of them hooked up. They turned the water off on four of them. And our sensors were able to tell that the water had been turned off within an hour. And they had soil moisture sensors. They had other ways of monitoring. They're all expert growers. The soil moisture wasn't able to detect it for quite a long time. The gardener couldn't tell for 36 hours, and they only were able to tell when they started to see the wilt on the leaf. So we were you know, able to provide a critical bit of watering information to these growers, to these plant breeders, right when they saw the event occur. And you know, they, they sent us a little box of chocolate with 100 hundred percent a plus written on it and that's one of my little trophies for the for the company <laughs> i love that yes and so you have you have this amazing product and you have an expansive you know list of potential and existing customers what was it like selling this idea and this product to investors it's been an interesting journey because i think it's not like there's a existing market for tree sensors so this is kind of where ePlant and Liquid Robotics had something in common. There wasn't an existing market for ocean-going data collection platforms. So we have, to, we have to build the market, which means we have to convince people that they need something from this technology. Luckily, in agriculture, there's a transition happening to more and more digital monitoring and data systems, kind of the digitization of the agricultural process that you know, happened quite some time ago in manufacturing and is starting to move out into the, into the orchard. So we can kind of play into that market there. And investors in agriculture see this as a real trend that they can attach onto. So we get some attention from agricultural investors. Outside of that, it's not like there's a forestry VC world 
that's really out there. There is some interest in sustainability. But we've been fortunate to be a founded by an ex-matrix venture capital partner. And we have John Thompson and Sandy Thompson on our investor list and, and supporting the company. John Thompson was the former chairman of Microsoft's board and former CEO of, of Symantec. And we have Mr. Dan Feldstein, who is the CMO for Red Ventures. So he understands how to, how to build and attack new markets. And so we've had some really good angels supporting the company and that's really how we've we've got ourselves established and they see the vision and that's kind of what we needed to sell we need to say hey look there's there's 3 trillion trees out there our market is trees come join us for this journey we've got something to go do and they joined us on the mission i kind of wanted to switch gears just a little bit because you have this big career and kind of the environment growing up is this what you always wanted to enter like and did you always want to start a company around the environment? So my dad was an entrepreneur and he he kind of got me into the starting a company part of that. I was a real computer geek in high school and college and I studied computer science. I always imagined kind of building something around computers. And I quickly realized I liked writing software and building things that actually made a difference. And I got into a career in semiconductor manufacturing and it just wasn't rewarding. So I, I don't think I knew when I was very young that I wanted to do something around the environment. But when the opportunity presented itself, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was like going from kind of slog and grind to, I got something to do and I want to get it done. I, I feel like I can make a difference here and I want to go do it. I remember in the early days of liquid robotics, which was really kind of my first foray into in, environmental entrepreneurship, we were in Hawaii. And we were about to go launch one of our wave gliders off the shores of Hawaii to go listen to humpback whales. And I looked at my brother and I said, man, if we only ever sell five of these things a year and we get to do this, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and I feel like I've been able to for the last couple of decades. And that's been pretty special. Mm -hmm. Sort of going off of that, since this isn't the first startup that you have worked at, what is something that you learned from Liquid Robotics that you have either implemented an ePlant or have decided to do differently with ePlant because of how it went before? Yeah, maybe maybe one of column A and one of column B, because there's certainly a lot mm -hmm. <laughs> that I've learned, both that I've, I've learned and value and will do again and, and wouldn't. Liquid Robotics was a tough journey to raise money to build a market and to create customers. But the lesson there is that that hard work pays off. When you build a market around a product which really makes a difference and has real value to people, that focus on value is what sustains the business long enough to get the customer response that you need to see. And so that is what I'm trying to bring from Liquid Robotics to ePlant is that perseverance around creating a valuable product that really makes a difference because that's the core of what you need to do as a product business to have a future. You know, you can always sell flash, you can always sell a little bit of a vision, but you really, at the end of the day, what'll keep the lights on and keep things running when it gets difficult is producing real value. And that's what we are trying to do at ePlan. Things that I wouldn't do, top of the list is probably spend money when I shouldn't. Mm. And you know, get over your skis in terms of cash burn. It's really easy to convince yourself you need one more person on board. You need to, you know, build one more thing on the roadmap. But at the end of the day, 
cash is life <laughs> for a startup company. And at one point, you know, Liquid Robotics had a pretty good investment and then, you know, kind of spent it way faster than it should and had to go around for another round of investment. And, you know, I wouldn't say if the Boeing deal hadn't happened, we would have been in real trouble. But if the Boeing deal hadn't happened, we might have been in real trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so we were kind of right there. And uh, I credit Gary Geisen, who was CEO at the time of the, the Boeing deal, you know, he flew a Boeing 747 through the eye of a, of a needle and got that deal done. But it was great for Boeing and it was great for Liquid Robotics. Those companies are well suited towards each other. You know, we think of Boeing as aircraft and we think of this defense, but they are seafloor to space and they're doing things with technology that are really pretty remarkable. And it's really cool to see Liquid Robotics kind of end up in that ecosystem of platforms and systems. And after decades in the game, how would you describe your leadership style? I'm a real coalition builder. So I like to convince people and bring them together, listen to them as much as I can, and then collectively agree on an idea and move forward. If somebody is objecting strongly and, and there's one strong objection in the room, I really try to listen to that. And it's often hard to disagree with somebody and move forward. But if you can convince them that this is the right path and put the disagreement to bed and move forward, you're going to move forward much more effectively than if you have folks who just don't agree with where you're moving. So I really try to build that concurrence into how we run the business. That said, that has to be tempered with decisiveness. So you can't let that drag out too long. You've got to get people together. You've got to have the hard conversations. You've got to move forward. But I think uh, people work best when they believe and when they feel and when they understand where things are going. I think that's the best way I've found to function. Yeah. And my follow-up to that was going to be, how do you, as a leader, really work to create a positive working environment for your employees so that they stay motivated? It's really treat them like people. You know, my coworkers, and this is kind of an interesting, I had an interesting conversation the other day where somebody said, you know, your worker, your coworkers aren't your friends. And I, I crossed my eyes and said, what do you mean? Uh, a lot of the folks I've worked with in the past, I'm working with now, and I've gone through multiple startups with a lot of these folks. I work with my brother on a day-to-day -day basis. They're friends, they're family, and I try to treat them like that. And there's always hard financial decisions at the end of the day with a startup, but I like working with people who I like working with, and I think that's reciprocated. I hope it's reciprocated. When people like what they're doing and they like the people they're working with, I think they work better. And so that's how I try to, you know, try to be. And what is it like working with your brother? I know your dad got you into the entrepreneurship space, and it's your second company working with your brother. What is that like? Yeah. Well, so he was the first CEO of Liquid Robotics, and I was the last. I was not. I was. I guess I'm not the last CEO because one a gentleman named Shane replaced me when I left. But I was. I was the CEO after the Boeing acquisition, and so we kind of went on this little interesting journey at Liquid Robotics, where I was working for my little brother, and then he, I was the CEO of the company at the end of that. And then I, with Joe Rizzi, founded Eplant, and Roger started to get involved. And Roger, my brother, is a inventor. Uh, par excellence. So as so we started to play around with this with this clothespin dendrometer thingy, Roger's the one who turned that into a product. And he started doing this, you know, I'm just going to mess around with this on weekends and help advise the company. And then I would realize he was working six to seven days a week because he's kind of a workaholic. And I said, look, you need to be my CTO. <laughs> Let's get this thing done. And we worked together at 
you know, before that at my dad's company, Heim Design. So I've been fortunate to have a brother who I can work with through my whole career. And it's it's not always been planned that way. It's it just kind of, you know, we land in places and say, hey, I need somebody who can do X. And we end up pulling each other into things. So it's been great. And before that, working with my dad has been amazing. I know a lot of families don't work together well, but I guess we're we're lucky to be able to make it work. And sort of thinking about where you guys are now, what's next? Walk us through sort of where you guys see ePlant headed over the next couple of years. It's kind of neat because we're at this point where the product really works. It's really starting to get out there and show us what it can do. Customers are really starting to tell us how they're using it and how they can use it. And, you know, I've mentioned agriculture, forestry, consumer, et cetera. And it sounds like we're scattered, but really we're not. You know, the customers are getting interested in this or customers are interested in trees. The value we're providing them is really value about taking care of trees. What I expect to happen is there are many applications for this that can kind of go really big. And you never know which ones are going to go big first. Is it PG&E deciding that they want to monitor all trees around power lines to make sure they're not falling over and unhealthy? Is it residents and consumers deciding that the backyard trees are the most important thing in the world to them? Is it reforestation projects realizing just how critical it is to be able to monitor carbon growth in real time? Is it agricultural users realizing this is an incredibly effective way to track the growth and health of their orchards as water becomes a more critical resource and these, you know, seven to 30-year investment vehicles that are their trees need more and more care to survive. Any and all of those can go big for ePlant. And we'll find out which as our customers show us where the value is. So that's what we're learning right now. And it's really kind of cool because we're getting conversations with the wine growers who want to use it to make sure that the grapes are the finest quality they can produce. We're getting, we're talking to citrus growers who want to make sure that they're watching for pathogens that could wipe out their entire crops. We're just getting these really big, cool applications that are coming across. Any and all of those could land for ePlant. And I'm just really curious to see where it's going to go. But they're all the same product. All of these are served by the same product. And that's kind of the fun thing with this company. One last question before we wrap, because I've been dying to know the whole conversation. Do you have a favorite tree? (laughs) I do. It's the cherry tree I was talking about before. (laughs) So... We planted it at the top of the hill at our house, and we have this uh, kind of nice little area where it's set up, a nice little circle of rocks around it. And I'm a, I'm a fiend when cherries are in season. They're my favorite fruit. And that tree has been growing like crazy. I'm weirdly obsessive about it. And so I want that thing to be giant. I want it to be healthy. And I probably spend too much time taking care of that tree. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fun. So thanks for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. So that was our conversation with Graham from ePlant. Dom, what did you think? I loved it. It was so cute. What about you? No, I know. Same here. It's always fun meeting founders that are like really passionate about things and the things themselves are like things I could get behind too. Definitely not a negative. I know. I kept thinking trees and I kept thinking of like, oh my gosh, this is big tree industry. Like, this is so cool. You know, you have something, you stick it to the tree and you can talk to it and like your plants are like, oh my gosh, it's so hot out. And you're like, OMG, LOL, I know. Or something like, (laughs) I thought it was really, 
really cool. I know. I know this isn't like the main part of the business, but the fact that you can like talk to the trees in your backyard if they have the sensors is so funny to me. Like I just, when he was saying that they could have the different personas, like I'm sure the tree in my backyard that's like smushed up against a fence, but is clearly like decades of years old, probably is like not a happy camper. But maybe, I don't know. I know. I don't know her. I want like a playlist for all the trees. Like, is there a tree going through like a My Chemical Romance phase? Like, is someone really into Beyonce's Renaissance? Like, I need to know all about these trees now. I know. And I think something that was like stood out to me about this is going in. I'm like, oh, this is neat trees. Like, it felt niche until we started talking about it. And I feel like Graham did a good job of being like, well, no, it's agriculture can use this. Energy industry can use this. Like people at home can use this. And I just thought it was interesting when you do talk to those seemingly niche products and like learning about how it's like, no, this just isn't something you're paying attention to. That doesn't mean it's small. I know. I was also thinking about that. I was like, he could totally sell this to the government, I guess, the national parks and every national park tree could have this thing on it and it could be like I don't know like a whole system to keep track of how our trees are doing nationally and I was like this is of course like every industry would need this because trees are so important even just I don't know I mean like he said it's kind of the lungs of the earth and there's so much happening in terms of climate devastation so it's like I think more than ever we should be paying attention to trees at least and I thought it was smart, too, what he said about because there are so many trees, they were like a sensor that's $10 even would be too expensive, which I think is definitely smart because I know we've had founders on here before and just like covering venture generally, like you see people make products that have such a high need and then the price point just means like they're never going to get fully integrated into the use cases that they're trying to do. I know. I liked seeing that he was really, really aware of how cheap these things have to be because, yeah, even $10 is too much. $5 is a lot for the bazillion trees that are out there. And so understanding the necessity of that, I also took note of that as well. Yeah. And it is interesting, too, because it plays into sort of they're trying to sell the customers, just like their product market fit in general, where he talks about all the different people who can use it and it's always fun, like, meeting a relatively young company where it's like, oh, we have a ton of customers, like, in different areas. Like he said, the orchards and the chocolate growers and all these different customers. And then it's like, oh, so how about VCs? And he's like, well, that's not as strong. I know. It's another one of those companies where you're like, this is clearly a massive industry with massive potential. And VCs are like, uh, I don't know. I know. Once again. Like, second time founder, first company exited. And clearly product market fit. I mean, like, what better shows product market fit? It exited to Boeing, too, right? Like, Boeing. It's like, but, like, what shows better product market (laughs) fit than customers coming to you and, like, wanting to use your product and, like, customers coming to you that expands even what the company thinks this product can do? Like, what shows better product market fit than that? What more do VCs want? We need to, I need to start looking into the ESG space. I wonder, has there been, like, how much money do companies like this typically get from VCs? Because this is, like, a classic company that should be getting a lot. No, it's so interesting. Especially we've had so many of these founders in a row, I feel, where I'm just, like, we, I feel like every outro now, we're just, like, so... What do VCs want? Like, maybe I don't know. <laughs> yes, but I also loved talking to him about, like, he was in Big Ocean before he jumped to Big Tree. And so I was like, they're so different. Similar, but also just very, very different. I mean, you just have to love learning. 
and really just love researching, love learning. I love that he's in the environment. So much is happening. This is one of the founders where I was just like, I loved everything about this conversation. No, I know. And the learning part too stood out to me because sure, you can be like an expert maybe in the space that you're trying to build in, but like how much of an expert can you be if you're building something that doesn't yet exist? So it's like him being like, oh, I love to learn. And that's like what's led me down this path, like two startups. And it's just like, that's why he's into it. That just feels like such a more wholesome approach. Like, obviously, I'm sure they want to make money, but like going in because he's like, yeah, I just love learning about this. I'm like curious where it goes. Is like, that's like the mindset that's going to take things through to the end. My favorite little anecdote was when he was talking about, what was it, being in the middle of the ocean and just whale watching. (laughs) And he's like, if I can do this forever, I would love it. And I'm like, honestly, slay. Like that is, that's really fun. I know. To love what you do. I know. Like sometimes it's like everyone talks about the founder grind and building a startup so hard and, oh, you're working 20 hours a day. And like for a lot of companies, like, yeah, you do need to do that. But like, it's nice to have a founder on who just, I just feel like he's having fun. I know. He's having a good time. I was like, I also want to work for a plant company and just, I don't know. Just vibe. like (laughs) Just vibe. And you know what? His product is able to be used by not just like experts, but also just regular people. Like it's inspired me to, well, I'm in a studio, so I can't fit a tree in here. But I feel like I'm going to go to Central Park and just, I'm going to pick a tree. And then I'm going to start talking to it. I'm be like, well, we're like the 1800s. Like, you've been here forever. Oh, my God. Yeah, you should. No, I really, I like that, too. Because a lot of companies have trouble when they do, like, the B2B, B2C model together super early like they did. But in this case, it's like the product actually, like, really lends well to either. It's like, sure, like, if I used it, I'd want different information than, say, like, a science foundation using them for research. But not that different. It is nice how that, like does actually lean well to launching both strategies early at the same time. And I'm excited to see the product expand to plants. I'm like, who do you think has more of an attitude, like a sunflower or like an oak tree? Ooh, I feel like we should say oak tree, but probably, probably the sunflower. It knows it's pretty. The sunflower? I feel like, yes, I feel like roses are also kind of like, it's giving mean girl a little bit. A little bit. I don't know. <laughs> We're just gonna have to see. We're gonna have to wait and find out. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Hold up. 